Hear now the word of God from Revelation 1, 19 through 2, 7. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have resisted those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we come before your word this morning in order to be given ears to hear. Please, give us ears to hear. Let us partake from the word of life, the good tree, the good fruit that is found within it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we say goodbye, and my, my mic is on, correct? Is my mic on? So, so. Have a battery problem. That's my issue. Um, so, maybe I'll be by my mic. I'm going to make this point. Before we uh, begin to say goodbye to this final chapter of Revelation, I think it's a good time for us to remember where we started when we came to this book before we get into chapter 2. We began the book of Revelation. It was actually the outdoor service. Remembering the last hundred years of world history. We thought about how if we had lived in 1920, um, we would have looked at World War I. We would have looked at that Spanish flu. We would have looked at the impending Great Depression. And we would have likely wondered, with the Christians of that time, are we close to the end? We... We then jumped ahead 20 years into the future and we looked at the outbreak of World War II, the the Holocaust of the Jews, and and ultimately uh, the war of really all wars of world history. And we would have wondered at that moment, is this possibly the end? 20 years forward, we would have had Sputnik in the sky, the Cold War. We would just have arisen from the Korean War. We would have had realities such as uh, Kennedy soon dying, Vietnam, the social strife, 
of the 60s. And we would have wondered, is the Lord coming back soon? And then in 1980, we had Mikhail Gorbachev. We had that that man who looks like he has the mark of the beast. We have a cold war that has settled on the ground of mutually assured destruction. And we would have wondered, is it possibly the end? And we looked at 2000, the year 2000, that that reality of September 11th as uh, it cut through a morning, a peaceful morning. And we would have wondered as the U.S. began a war, as it declared, against the axis of evil, is the end soon coming? And then we acknowledge the moment in time in history we are currently in, in 2020. And I think I'm not the only one who has occasionally allowed my thoughts to wander and think, hmm, is the end soon coming? This period. And so if we look at history and we appreciate that, Why I want us to remember that before we leave this chapter is that this book asserts, and the Bible really asserts, a timeless quality to it. It's actually funny. There's a lot of debate about when the book of Revelation was written. And the debate is, you know, was it written before 70 A.D.? Or was it written around 90 A.D.? Or was it written around 110 A.D.? And there are actually arguments because that can be made about each and every era. I, I personally feel this book was written before 70 AD, but the reality is, just like we can look in 20-year increments of last 100 years, there are moments in this book where prophecy seems to get fulfilled uh, multiple times. It's a weird concept for us to think about and yet we really embrace this reality every Christmas time. When we think on the slaughter of the infants in Matthew chapter 2, uh, and Matthew writes, this was to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy, there is actually a prophetic tension in Matthew saying that. Because 500 years, more than 500 years earlier, when the Babylonians marched on uh, Judah, They slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy for the first time. We tend to want to pigeonhole uh, prophecy and acting like it can only be fulfilled once. And yet I promise you, because you can even read it in their works, if we had a time machine, for instance, and were able to visit the greatest Bible translator in church history... Jerome, in 400 AD, he would have a harder time believing that most of Revelation was going to be taking place in the future than it was in a book talking about some of of the past suffering that the church has already experienced. But maybe Jerome's just a guy who's just off track. Well, actually, if we had a time machine and then jumped to Martin Luther... He also would have a harder time believing that most of this book is going to be fulfilled in the future because he had seen so much of the fulfillment in the historic past of the church. And so we should be mindful of that. What What am I basically trying to say with this? Let me use this verse to help understand what I'm trying to say here. I want you to consider Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 with me for a moment where the prophet of God declares the following and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So basically, it's a prophecy that within it, in one sense, it foreshadows Pentecost. It could even uh, foreshadow a few other things like the new heavens and new earth. But it also just simply foreshadows that moment where a believer is given a new breath of life by the Holy Spirit of God. And so can I ask you, roughly speaking, let's just do in generalities, how many times has that prophecy been fulfilled in church history? Billions, right? Billions of times. Bruce, it was fulfilled when he was 15. For me, it was fulfilled when I was 19. For you, when, it, when you became a believer, you know that moment. It was fulfilled. And, and we don't look at Ezekiel's prophecy and say it can only be fulfilled once. And so I want us, before we leave Revelation chapter 1, to not forget that this has been a chapter that has made clear to us that we worship the God who is, who was, and who is to come. The God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future. Uh, Oftentimes, I can especially see commentators on verse 19 here, on this book, sometimes some of my favorite commentators, and they pigeonhole themselves into saying this prophecy can only be fulfilled once. And yet that's not... We don't want to do that where Scripture doesn't uh, require it. And so because this is a timeless word and truth we approach this morning, we move on into these seven churches. And that idea of timeless is simply this. It, again, speaks to all generations. Scripture promises us that. It all, all, both genders. You know, it speaks to all communities, all colors, and uh, all, all times in history. When we say something's timeless, we often t- use that in remarks to things like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, or the Mona Lisa, or the movie The Princess Bride. Okay, one of those things is not like the other. Uh, Beethoven's Ninth isn't worthy of being called timeless. Anything with Peter Falk in it, you know, Columbo, is, is worthy to stand the test of time. Um, so, these seven churches, as we read it, yes, there is a sense these prophecies were fulfilled within the seven churches. And yet, these churches also represent us and the church age, and they speak to old Goshenhoppen today. They speak and are timeless to speak into our situation. God wants us to ask, how, how and what can we learn from, what can we learn from these churches? through the prophecies to former Christian congregations that really in themselves no longer stand today. He gives and he takes away. So let's move on to chapter 2. Our Lord's word to Ephesus begins with an address, as the ESV puts it, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now sometimes knowing biblical languages actually creates debates that just reading um, in the English uh, doesn't uh, create. So let me uh, actually comment a little bit about a debate people suggest here. This might not be a reference to the angels in heaven who watch over the church, like the ESV suggests. But the Word of God might actually be considering the ministers of churches as messengers of 
up to the church because technically speaking the word here can either be a word for the messenger who is the minister or it can be the messenger who is the angelic messenger and both the heavenly host and ultimately the minister helps establish the tone and message for the church telling the church what it needs to hear you all of us here, most of us here, I would assume, have been in a variety of churches. Even if you've only been a lifer here at Old Goshenhoppen, the wall on that side of the stairway tells you you've sat under different ministers. And the reality is, all of us are slightly different. We have different tones of ministry. Um, and so, in one sense, I think we should be sympathetic to those that believe these letters are directed to the ministers within these congregations not the angels. However, there also are textual clues that suggest that the more popular angel translation of this word might actually be the better idea here. That in one sense, John is trying to make clear to us, heavenly, we, he, our Lord has heavenly guards who watch over the true churches of Christ. And Christ's instruction then begins in acknowledging them. And so then we are left to ask, why did John leave us in a lurch? Why don't we know for certain if Jesus is addressing the angels or the ministers of the congregation who serve the church? And can I submit a really simple solution to this dilemma? What if the word was selected intentionally that could reference both the heavenly angels but also the earthly ministers because the address is for both the heavenly host and the ministers of Christ? That both the angels of heaven and the ministerial servants here on earth who are obedient to Christ's word are being called to listen up because the king is speaking to us that the message is for all of us. This actually makes the most sense for me that God intentionally left some ambiguity because he wanted us to be mindful of both possibilities. Well then, what do we need to hear about this church of Ephesus? Christ will give it nine compliments Nine things he pray, he'll praise, and don't worry, it's not going to be, I'm not going to go through all of them one at a time. Some I'm going to lump together, and I'm actually going to skip verse 6 altogether into a later sermon. But there are still nine good things he says about this church, but also one warning. And the one warning is so vital for them to hear. Jesus says, practically speaking, if you fail to appreciate my, my one warning, You'll cease to be a church of mine. I'm going to stop standing with you. So, the first compliment starts in verse 2, and it reads, I know your works, your toil. The first thing God loves about Ephesus is that they exhaust themselves in order to work and labor for Jesus. God looks at those truly working within the church, and he's saying to the workers within the community, I treasure that you're willing to exhaust yourselves for my sake. God knows how much energy we really put in and being active in the ministry of Christ. And while you might want to put this on the pastor's shoulders, I'm sorry, the idea here, if you look at the word, is a shared reality of work. Jesus is now transitioning from the messenger to talking to and addressing the entire church. Even the book of Ephesians that we were just in that speaks to Ephesus often talked about church this way, as a collective unity who either stands or falls together. All of us who consider uh, this place our ministry home base, God looks at us all and asks, 
How hard are you truly working for me down there in those fields? I remember back when I was a supervisor at Harrah's and uh, there was this one employee who um, continued checking out at the time clock at 3.01 p.m. I would dismiss the employee at 2.52 p.m. And the distance uh, to the time clock from where I dismissed the employee um, was roughly walking to the back of the church and maybe halfway, or maybe back again. Let's say that. And so this employee, somehow being dismissed at 2.52, kept checking out at 3.01 at the time clock. And 3.01 at the time clock meant that Harris then had to pay for them for an extra 15 minutes. Of course, they didn't know that, right? Um, And so after several weeks of this, uh, I had to sit the employee down in my office and basically say, you can't be doing this. You can't be manipulating the time clock like this. You have to check out of work. And, of course, the employee responded with what? Criticism for the remainder of the time that I was there as a supervisor, because how dare I? They would love to uh, speak under their breath about me. Cool thing happened, though, later on in Facebook. They apologized. So um, after I had moved out of St. Louis. God is saying here, hey, I hold the ultimate time clock. And I thank you for those who, who really are exhausting themselves and working for me. And even more than that, it's not just about putting in just the hours, but the motives behind the work we do. And so that should be a relief for some of us to hear. And that possibly should absolutely uh, alarm others of us. God controls the time clock. He knows the motivations behind the work we do. He loves, celebrates, and appreciates those who in right motivation are willing to exhaust themselves for his name's sake. Now don't get me wrong. God is still the God of rest. He creates the Sabbath. He appreciates rest. He doesn't want us to just be exhausted for exhausted sake, but he loves it. He delights in it. The next compliment for Ephesus is that they have patiently endured. All churches have moments where we are going to be faced with enduring hardships, tribulations, and temptations, and and trials, and Ephesus has endured well. God knows that hardships come. God knew that a tornado would come for old Goshenhoven. God knows that COVID would come. God knows that we would be watching America devolve into a post-Christian morality kind of country. And God wants to see how steadfast we can remain in him. When hard moments come, we can't let difficulties within the church and within our lives mean we forget about Christ. In those moments we want to remember, we enjoy a Lord and Savior who stands in our midst. Third, the church is complimented because it cannot bear with those who are evil. Maybe I'll translate this into the modern vernacular in order that it has an appropriate amount of being shocking to our ears. Jesus is thanking the church for their degree of intolerance. Imagine that. Jesus complimenting degrees of intolerance. Not a popular message in our day. Lots of pulpits refuse to say things publicly. 
for fear of the mob saying they're intolerant, but Ephesus didn't, and Ephesus wouldn't, and Jesus loved that about them. We live in a world where the worst sin in the public square one can be guilty of is being declared intolerant. And by the way, it's not just a general idea of evil Jesus has in mind here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Look at the words. Notice the evil is in reference to people. Those who are evil, it says, which the Bible sometimes has made clear is the legalistic Pharisee. Other times it's the godless pagan. And most of all, it's the hypocritical Christian who is living contrary to how the Word of God calls him to live. Christianity has certain things we can quibble over and debate over. However, there are hard and fast lines of morality and how we are called to live, whether we, uh, in Christian community, in life together, in regards to gender, in regards to sexuality, in regards to marriage, in regards to treating all people as image bearers, and within public life, certain, uh, even certain patterns of habits and abuse that we cannot tolerate that are dividing lines within the church, that the church is not allowed to cross and say, that's good. Ephesus was a church that held the line. Yet in modern culture, that has made intolerance of any sin public enemy number one, it's going to be a challenge for every Bible-believing church going forward to continue to hold that line. But we must hold that line, both as a congregation and individually. Next, Ephesus is appreciated by God because they test the teaching that they receive and rightly understand what is false teaching and its, and its true teaching. You know, it's interesting because we've been going through the Reformation in Sunday school and so much of the argument that Rome ends up creating against the Reformation is that they had no right, the Reformers, to call into question the papacy, to call into question the church. And yet here is Ephesus... In Revelation chapter 1, an Ephesus, mind you, that was church planted by the Apostle Paul, that John serves at as pastor, the Apostle John, and possibly even Mary lived within the congregation. And they are celebrated for the fact that they were willing to question the teaching that they heard. To be basically a Berean, to set it, up, to set it against the word of God. Jesus compliments Ephesus' ability not to just blindly accept everyone, but to actually examine what they say. Also worthy of mentioning is the fact that Ephesus not just was able to examine false teachers, but they were willing to call out false teaching. It's one thing to know someone's a false teacher. It's another thing to declare that publicly. This is why, for instance... um, you know, sometimes people want to move on. They want to go to another church. And this will, if you, you know, if the doubts in about a year say, hey, we, we feel like the Lord's call is having us move on, my last request would be this. Can I help you find the next church that you're going to be at? And some people think that's weird or odd or strange. But there are a lot of false teachers out there. And there are also a lot of better pastors out there with gifts that I don't have. And I just want to make sure that people, if they leave here, don't fall into a trap of falling under a pulpit that has false teaching. Ephesus knew the difference, and they were celebrated for this fact. So, you must stay away from those who tolerate ungodly, unbiblical, and patently false 
teaching. It is an insult to the Lord our God who stands in our midst. And unfortunately, this is a dying quality at the moment in the American church. Now we've arrived at the complement of verse 3. And I want us to consider the entirety of this verse all on its own. It reads, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And the more I thought about this verse this week, the more overwhelmed I was by it. With what Jesus is actually saying here. Because in one sense, Jesus is saying, I know in many ways your life is made harder because of my name. It just sounds wrong saying that. I mean, we don't want to admit that in public, do we? That our life, in certain ways, is, is made harder because we're a Christian and we refuse to give up the name of Christ. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is not one to mince words and he knows we all have those areas in life where in our lives we endure these unique moments of suffering simply kind of brought about through our faith because we believe in the name of Jesus. We all have crosses to bear in life. I was just talking with somebody this week who was talking about the struggle of being obedient to the name of Christ in this way. And, and, and most weeks, honestly. And sometimes I'm talking to myself when I do that. We all have crosses to bear in life. And we're, we're tempted in those moments to say, Really, God? Really? I believe in you and this is what I get in return? This is what you have for me? But we don't often dare say it out loud. How can we? Because we know such thoughts are awful. And yet He has the courage to say it for us. And thank us. And thank us for continuing to hold on to Him. Jesus says, yes, I know your life in many ways can be seen as being made harder because you hold on to my name's sake. And yet he says, you have not grown weary of me. Which is another way of saying, uh, you have not tired of me. So in part, Jesus is saying here, thank you for not growing tired of me. Thank you for not growing tired of me. When it might have seemed easier at first for you to tire of me, you've held on, you've continued to keep the faith, so thank you. You know, the most recent numbers I could find from Barna tell us that the American Christian Church has currently lost, since March of 2020, one-third of its members permanently. Permanently. It's the most recent members. Really, more than one-third. It's at 35%. Permanently. It's not about a virus for them. or They're just, I'm done with it. I'm tired of it. I've given up on Christ. One-third. Not a pandemic we're hearing much about. But those are staggering numbers. One-third. And of course, we are Reformed people. And we know the ultimate things that the Ephesians church knew. God's providence is still over even that. And you can't really truly let go of something you never had. But, this is still a moment where Jesus allows us to sit with the following reality. Jesus knows the cost of holding His name above all others. And He's also aware of those who surrender it. And in such moments, 
Jesus, who is so infinitely more tender than we ever dare believe, says, this ultimate lover of our soul, he says to us, thank you. Thank you for not tiring when it comes to my name. Thank you for holding firm. Thank you for not letting go. I love that about you. I love that quality you have. He sees you're struggling to hold firm on to Him and His name, and He loves that about you, Christian. So don't let go. Don't let go. And it's at this moment where Jesus now gives the complaint against Ephesus, and the complaint is this. You have abandoned the love you have had at first. Basically, you might be holding on to me, but you don't hold on to me with the same love you used to. There are plenty of people um, who took this verse and wanted to make it about their like pastoral hobby horse, but the wooden translation in the Greek can really help us not get off track with the first part here. The best wooden translation I can provide for you is the idea that is saying, you have lost your love of the first. Let me say that again. You have lost your love of the one of the first, sorry, of the first. So who is the first above all others? The reality is, I lost my mic again, didn't I? It's okay. Uh, the reality is, the first above all others is our God. We can just go back into the first chapter of Revelation and didn't the Father give us the Son in part so that we could love the Son? And didn't the Son do the works of the Father in part that through the power of the Holy Spirit we could cry out to our Father in love? And didn't the Holy Spirit intimately come upon us so we could understand the fullness of how our triune God loves us? Ephesus' issue is this. Doctrinally, they are pure. They're willing to not tolerate those things that God hates. They endure hard seasons. They're committed to holding on to Christ and not letting go. But what they lack is rather simple. They don't love God like they used to. They don't hang on to Him with love, but more out of routine and habit. And as a pastor, I have to admit, I get that. I've said it many a times, but I think one of the most poignant moments in all of ministry was the first time I took the pulpit at Spring Meadows where that morning I was not so much in tune with God or all that in love with God. And now I have to go before 200 people to worship and celebrate the Lord on the Lord's Day. Yet Scripture makes clear, and even this final book of Scripture culminates with the image that we are married to Christ, and in our marriage, we should intimately love Christ. A loveless marriage is, of course, a struggle for both parties. And our marriage to Christ is no different. He doesn't want us to be loveless in regards to Him. You know, I'm going to get in trouble for this illustration, but I'm still going to use it. I grew up in a, a fairly wealthy area of the country. It turns out that if people make a lot of money, they want to live in a region of the world that is always really between 60 and 70 degrees, called San Diego. That's just, I, I know it's crazy, but that's what people do. And so you go to certain areas of San Diego, and you would see, you know, getting out of the Ferrari, it was usually the Magnum P.I. Ferrari growing up, getting out of the Magnum P.I. Ferrari, some... Man who is 60 getting out with some 20, 30-something wife. 
And I'm not condoning this term. I think probably some of you have already figured out. We already have an assumption about that kind of marriage. I hope that they loved each other um, purely. A God-given love, you know. But we would call them a trophy wife. Let's be candid for a moment. We're married to Christ. We're not the trophy wife. That's not the story of the Bible. He's actually the trophy bridegroom. And he's insulted, rightfully so, when we forget how wonderful he is. And as well he should. As well he should. Here we have this beautiful Savior who allowed himself to be physically marred upon the cross, to become someone scorned. And why did he do it? Why did he endure such an awful fate? Because he wanted to make us beautiful, a beautiful bride that could walk alongside him. Even though we in ourselves, we are anything but beautiful on our own. The cross is where our beautiful Savior was made for a moment ugly and wretched for our sake, enduring the agonies of hell so that we might become his beautiful workmanship, prepared for heaven. And any church that struggles to remember why Christ needs to be at the heart of the ministry, the heart and center of the church, is under threat of having the lampstand removed, of Christ basically saying, I will no longer walk alongside you, I will depart from you. And the beauty of that is, if we remember our first love, if we remember Christ first, all of a sudden, we want to do the works of endurance, we want to work for Him, we are prepared to labor in His fields. And yet Ephesus... Maybe it was the long trials and hardened battles they were made to endure, but they had lost some of that marital spark. This is a church that previously had held in Acts chapter 19 a bonfire. A bonfire. Probably melting somewhere in the modern day equivalent of millions of dollars of pagan shrines and, and icons. And just utterly destroying wicked things found in their lives. Imagine if that, we created an event once a year. Bonfire, let's all go out and burn together all the things that cause us to stumble and sin, and, and sin. I don't think you're supposed to burn electronics, but I think that would be for quite a few of us. True. That's what they did. They were so utterly in love. They could see the healing power of Christ, both in their city miraculously through miracles, as the book of Acts tells us, but just the healing power of the gospel. And they fell in love with him. And yet somewhere along the way, the relationship became routine and common and listless and lifeless and had lost that spark. And he will leave such churches that forget. History has proven this prophecy to be true so many times in so many ways. If we scoured, especially the northeast here of the country, we would find so many empty churches and I think a great many of them lost their first love. And that's why they're shut down. So let us not forget. Let us not be discouraged in this present hour. Let us not tolerate people and things that are evil. Let us not be people who tire of Christ. Let us rather remember how fortunate we are to be considered by Him a prized possession in which He removes our once heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. 
And one day, as verse 7 points out, our Lord and Savior will usher us in to a new paradise, to a new garden, in a life that is everlasting to come. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, help us to remember our first love. Help us not to be forgetful. Help us to not tolerate that which our first love despises and hates. Whether it is individual sin in our lives or even uh, within our community. Help us to be a church that holds fast to the doctrine, the teaching, the truths of the Word of God, that holds on to you, that refuses to tire of you, that refuses to let go. Let us be a church that exhausts itself in serving you. And let it all be done out of the perfect motive of love. Love for the ultimate prize, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom uh, the Father...